Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. For nearly a century, some of the best woodcarvers in Appalachia have trained at a folk school in North Carolina. And newcomers can still learn the craft. He was very generous with his praise on my first carving. I look at it now and it was, uh, it's pretty sad. It was a squirrel. (laughs) I still have it, I laugh at it now. In 2021, Willie Carver was named Kentucky's Teacher of the Year. Then he left his job over homophobia and became an activist and celebrated poet. I'm a big gay Appalachian, so I got a whole lifetime of uh, feeling strong emotions. I'm not afraid of them. Uh, I'm comfortable letting them happen. And the zine Porchbeers chronicles the author's life in Appalachia, including a move from Huntington to Chattanooga and back again. I feel like that wanderlust has always kind of been in me, and uh, one of my ways of getting in and out and recording memories is uh, just writing. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. The John C. Campbell Folk School was founded in Western North Carolina in 1925. And the Brasstown Carvers have operated there almost as long, since 1929. Their woodwork has been celebrated, sought after, and collected. Pieces from the Carvers have been bought up by the White House and given as state gifts. Today, only a handful of Brasstown Carvers remain. But the group is still attracting new students. And with the help of longtime carvers, they're shaping a new future. Stephanie Priscos has the story. It's a foggy morning, and Angela Wynn is headed into the John C. Campbell Folk School. Angela works as a housekeeper here. But today, she's at the school for a different reason. Hey, buddy. (laughs) Good to see you again. She's here to learn how to cut out wood blanks from Richard Carter. I just cut boxes of patterns out. Okay. He's a longtime Brasstown carver. Yeah, I've got to uh, try to pick a piece of wood or get two or three hours. Angela moved to Brasstown from Florida about a year and a half ago, and that's when she started learning to carve. She says she tried different crafts before, but this felt different. I was instantly hooked. Well, almost instantly. The first carving night, I absolutely was clueless, and I didn't even know where to start. I could see what I wanted to do. I just didn't have the nerve to do it. But she got some help from Richard. He was very generous with his praise on my first carving. I look at it now, and it was, uh, it's pretty sad. It was a squirrel. <laughs> I still have it. I laugh at it now. There's a long tradition of whittling and wood carving in Brasstown, but being an official Brasstown carver is a special honor. People want to know, you know, how quick can I get to be a Brasstown carver, and it's not quick. Richard is 73. He grew up near the folk school and has been a Brasstown carver for almost 50 years. He says each aspiring carver has to complete a checklist of challenges to prove their skill and consistency. One of those challenges is carving least ones. These are tiny animal carvings that stand under two inches tall. I'm working on a least one beaver. Angela and Richard are sitting side by side, carving tiny beavers out of basswood. That's probably making a real good sound there. (laughs) Even the rough outs are cute. As they work, Richard shows Angela some tricks. Start going off of the side and hopefully these won't just pop out like some of the... (laughs) Angela says she's learned a lot from carving including patience. That's something I can relate to on a personal level. I used to work at the folk school, and I attended the Brasstown Carver's weekly carving nights. I loved chatting with my neighbors while my hands were busy, but it was hard for me to see anything in the wood. I usually felt like I was getting nowhere. But Richard says Angela showed promise from her very first carving night. You could tell, uh, like I say, we, we watch people in here, and we can tell when they're going to do be able to do real well and she she does real good for me the joy is just finding the animal in there Mm -hmm. and making it my own and it's surprising it's it's just like a little surprise every time i know one of my great friends he was here a month ago and he took a bird home with him and he brought it back last week and it was a little gnome (laughs) 
The Brass Town Carvers were started by Olive Dame Campbell in the mid-1920s, a few years after she co-founded the John C. Campbell Folk School. The carvers were encouraged to carve what they saw, typically animals, and they soon became famous for their realistic figures. Caroline Baxter is the Folk School's craft shop manager. She says that the Brass Town Carvers program was part of Campbell's larger vision of an economic future for Appalachians that didn't require moving away from home. One of her goals was to provide economic development for the carvers, give them a way to make money in the seasons where their fields were not being worked and they kind of had downtime. The Brasstown carvers sold their work in shops across the country. Travis Souther is the folk school's archivist, and he told me that in the 1930s, Brasstown carver fame even reached the White House. Some of those uh, wood carvings were purchased uh, by the, the president and Mrs. Roosevelt, and they were later given as gifts to a young lady who was living in England at the time. The young lady? Future Queen Elizabeth II. There's a story you hear in Brasstown about a family that was able to purchase a house during the Great Depression with the money they earned from carving alone. But Angela and Richard say there's not really a way you could do that today. It's only side money now. I would yeah. love to be able to carve full-time, but yeah. I'm not to that point. Yeah. These days, Angela is more than just a student of Richard's. At age 53, she's the newest official member of the Brasstown Carvers. Many of the carvers are in their 70s and 80s. So, in a way, she represents a new generation of Brasstown Carver. And Richard and Angela recently received a Folklife Apprenticeship Grant from the North Carolina Arts Council to support her continuing training. Richard and Angela meet again for the weekly carving night at the Folk School, which is free and open to all. It's a place for experienced carvers to spend time together and talk shop. I'm trying to finish off the, the details and the little ghost. He was roughed out, but I'm trying to uh, smooth out the edge. It's also a place for newcomers to try out carving. Richard says they really want to encourage young people to come. We've got a young one nine-year-old coming tonight, so hopefully uh, he's excited to get into this. Uh, I've got a six-year-old at home that wants to do it, but uh, I'm trying to hold out on that for a while. I'm going to give him a bar of soap and something to let him, let him work on. As the newest Town carver, Angela has some advice for beginners. One thing I would say is, is just to try it. Don't be afraid. Don't be intimidated. She says, just give it a shot. You never know what you can do until you try. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Stephanie Priscos in Brasstown, North Carolina. That story is part of our Folkways Reporting Project, which covers arts and culture in our region. Check out our website, wvpublic.org, where you can find dozens more Folkways stories, like this next one from 2021. Some families in Appalachia have built deep traditions around spinning and weaving, usually among women. But that wool doesn't just magically appear. It's part of the tradition, and it starts with raising the sheep. Folkways reporter Heather Nide reported on the sharing of that knowledge. If you've ever tried to shear a sheep, you know it takes some practice. Here's how Margaret Bruning describes it. Somebody's going to get cut. <laughs> Either me or the sheep, or probably both of us. And I said, I'm going to sweat my guts out, and the sheep's going to be upside down a lot. She's not going to be that comfortable. Um, and I'm not really proficient, so it's going to look kind of awkward, and it'll be okay. <laughs> Five years ago, Margaret and her husband David were living in L.A., but they were tired of the city. So they sold most of their stuff, packed up what was left, and traveled the country, working on organic farms along the way. They finally stopped in rural West Virginia. It's very wild here. It's like the Wild West, except we're not west of the Mississippi. Now, Margaret isn't a novice when it comes to farming. She actually grew up on a goat farm. I grew up mostly in rural dairy country in upstate New York. But she didn't know a lot about raising sheep. That's something she's learning from Kathy Evans, one of the owners of Evans Knob Farm in Preston County, West Virginia. We're living on my husband's family farm. It's been in the family for, well, my grandchildren will be the sixth generation that's been on this farm. It's a good thing, too, 
because within a year of buying a farm in Randolph County, West Virginia, Margaret and her husband suddenly became the owners of a small flock of gray and black Romanoff sheep. And I've been stumbling through, and a lot of it's been very hard lessons, how to keep them healthy, the right decisions to make with tiny newborn lambs. Nearly 20% of newborns die before they're weaned, usually in the first 10 days of life. So Margaret has turned to Kathy for all kinds of advice, everything from tending her flock to managing budgets. So that's Kathy. She's a seasoned market gardener, farmer. Her head is full of a lot of stuff. Me? I have made my sheep almost into my friends, and I, and I probably shouldn't do that. And whenever I need to toughen up, yeah, I think about Kathy. I think that she would just buck up. And that's what she's coached me on. Another thing Kathy's coached her on? Sheep shearing. Normally, you're bent over the animal, holding it with one hand while shearing the fleece with the other. It's awkward. And it's physically hard. But Kathy taught her a technique that requires less upper body strength. We take them from standing on all fours to sitting on their butt, and we cradle them between our legs. So she watched that step. She helped me get the sheep set up and then um, watched me do the shearing, and she trimmed hooves. Those lessons are a part of a master apprentice program that Kathy and Margaret are working on together called Sheep to Shawl. Shearing is just one step. The fleece has to be washed and dried, then combed and carded before it's ready for the spinning wheel. Your hands are doing one thing and um, your foot's doing another thing. So I'm controlling the diameter of the yarn and the number of times it twists with my right hand and my left hand is doing a process called drafting. So I'm pulling the fiber back so that there's not like a great big clump that goes through at once. Once the spinning is done, Kathy winds the yarn into one large loop until she has a full skein. Then she dips it in hot water to set the twist of the yarn and hangs it to dry. Then it's ready for knitting, crocheting, or weaving on a loom like the one in Kathy's studio. These are the tools and techniques Kathy is passing along to Margaret through their apprenticeship. But it goes beyond that. I hope to give Margaret the confidence and the skills that she needs to be able to do this sheep to shawl process. Margaret and I were already friends before we did this, but just to strengthen that through this process. And she knows that I'm here anytime she needs me. Kathy demonstrated that on a night not long ago. One of Margaret's ewes was struggling to give birth. She was afraid she would lose the mother and lamb. So she called Kathy. David and I were both like pulling as hard as we could pull. <laughs> Kathy could tell they had to act quickly. I knew exactly what they were facing. I could, I could picture in my mind what was happening and what they needed to do. Kathy just put everything down. And she spent an hour on the phone with us. And it was like, Margaret, you can do this. You know, just encouraging her to, you can do this. Take a deep breath. Give David the phone. We can do this together. Because I'm thinking, I'm two and a half hours away from her. I can't get to her in time to save this lamb and you. She has got to trust me and do what I tell her to do, or we're going to lose both of them. I walked her through the process. We had a beautiful ram lamb. She saved the you. She said, we did it. And I said, well, of course we did it. I felt this Real true confidence having her by my side. Kathy knew that losing either animal that night would have been devastating for Margaret. The sheep had belonged to Margaret's mother. She left the flock to Margaret when she passed away a few years ago. You know, it's not been that long since her mother passed. And it's a grieving process. It takes, it takes as long as it takes. As long as that original flock of sheep is with Margaret, she still has a piece of her mom. 
I feel so grateful in having met Kathy because she possesses those qualities that my mom has. And she utilizes those qualities and she's been so kind <laughs> towards me and very, very patient. Margaret sees her partnership with Kathy as a continuation of the traditions of so many women before her. And it's also a tribute to her mother and the legacy she's passed on to her. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Heather Day. Coming up, educator, activist, and poet Willie Carver. Someone had questioned me and said, why would a queer person choose to live in Appalachia? I just don't understand. And I said, because it will be easier for me to convince Appalachians to treat me with dignity as an LGBTQ person than to convince coastal liberals to treat me as an Appalachian person with dignity. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, focusing on students' futures. Classes available at concord.edu slash apply. Willie Carver was Kentucky's Teacher of the Year in 2021. He taught English and French for 10 years at Montgomery County High School where he also oversaw several student clubs. Carver is openly gay, and not everybody was okay with a gay high school teacher. Carver said he and LGBTQ students faced homophobia and were frequently harassed. And so in 2022, he resigned from the high school. Carver went to work at the University of Kentucky. Last summer, he released Gay Poems for Red States, which attracted a lot of praise and helped turn him into a much-followed, outspoken voice on social media. Producer Bill Lynch recently caught up with Carver. Gay Poems for Red States. It's, it's a catchy title, but I would say right now the climate for LGBTQ people in Appalachia is, uh, is difficult, mm -hmm. uh, especially if you're trans. So it kind of feels like where you maybe kind of poking the bear a little bit with it. I, I don't want to just poke the bear. I want to rip the blanket off of it and knock the door off of its hibernation den and force it to see what it's doing. A lot of what happens, and I say this as someone who is queer and Appalachian, is we, we want to create easy national categories for people who can't be put into those things. And so I am just as much Appalachian as I am queer. And to choose my queerness as a general rule in the United States is what, to move to a coastal city and then look down on the ignorant red state people. And I think to choose my Appalachian-ness sometimes would be to see those highfalutin city folks as uninterested in my life. And I, my, this title was my way of saying I reject both of those. I'm going to be exactly what I am. And uh, I want you to recognize me doing it. I want, I want both stereotypes to see me doing it and question their role and why I'm having to poke. Two bears, really. You've lived outside of Appalachia. What was that like to kind of be an Appalachian away and looking back in? So the funny thing is my first place, the first place I moved to outside of Eastern Kentucky was France. I lived in Picardie, which is, it's in the far North. Uh, there used to be a lot of coal mines. Those have shut down. So now there's a lot of poverty, regional accents and traditional know-how that people sort of share with each other to get by. I was so at home. <laughs> I was like, I might as well be in Appalachia. Uh, and then I moved to the Deep South, uh, and I learned that Appalachia is not the South. Uh, I mean, it, it is some version of it, some whatever uh, metaphor people want to use to describe that relationship. But the humor of Appalachia doesn't translate easily into the suburban South, at least. Um, I think the uh, free spirit and the not taking stuff too seriously part of Appalachia doesn't translate itself very well the South. I lived in Vermont. It's beautiful. It's where I got married. I will always be grateful for that. But it was there that I really saw played out with my, me being in the middle of it, this sort of ignorance about people from Appalachia, people from the South, people from rural places in the mouths of supposedly progressive people. 
people questioning my intelligence, people making these assumptions that I must have had to escape some horrific place. I must be so grateful because everything is better. I said something online that uh, angered a lot of people. So that must mean I must have said something close to the truth. Someone had questioned me and said, why would a queer person choose to live in Appalachia? I just don't understand. And I said, because it will be easier for me to convince Appalachians to treat me with dignity as an LGBTQ person than to convince coastal liberals to treat me as an Appalachian person with dignity. And I think because we sort of collectively as a country group Appalachian people into a political group, no one feels any guilt about the the way they treat people with stereotypes. So I learned uh, living outside of Appalachia, how Appalachian I am, um, and two, that the parts of me can't be divided away for anyone's benefit. This book comes out after, well, everything that happened in 2022. So how far do you go back as far as poetry? Were you writing before then, or did it the catalysts of, you know, being teacher of the year in Kentucky and then, you know, leaving your job, which came first, I guess. Poetry came way first. Um, I was always interested in language, uh, interested in how my family communicated ideas. I would, I've been obsessed with linguistics my entire life, but I, I would hear the poetry and how people talked and wanted to replicate it, wanted to capture it. And in college, I had fantastic professors. I credit them with helping me learn feel like I was a poet. Once I became a teacher, I basically wrote for my students. That was what it looked like. Uh, so I wasn't writing to publish or anything like that. I really conceived of myself as a teacher. I go into the classroom and whatever my students need, it's for them. Whatever I'm doing outside of the classroom is really died back to my classroom. So I wasn't thinking about writing. But then once I left the classroom, I felt this strong need to do what I'd always been doing, which is help students. It's almost like um, like a parent watching their kids and the parent is actively trying to take care of them and then you're sort of pulled away and you're like, how do I take care of them, right? In this case, that may remind them how strong they are. And so poetry was a, a natural way to do that. I like some of your uh, your imagery and things you use. And uh, you, you come back to food a couple of times. I think about the, uh, uh, the cornmeal pancakes and even your description of gravy and beans and things like that. Were you aware that you were drawn to those particular things or they just kind of turn up? I was not aware. One of the things I firmly believe about writing is if you're writing a collection, whether we're talking poetry or short stories, I don't think you should need to actively tease out a motif or figure it out. I think it's going to show up, right? Whatever's, uh, whatever your brain or your heart or your soul or whatever are fixated on. And I think in writing this, I was very angry at the fact that my school was choosing silence when its students were in harm's way. And I had actually gone to write an angry letter to my superintendent about how furious I was and ended up writing that first poem. A lot of what was happening as I was writing was I would kind of wake up and there would be this young child inside of me wanting to write. And I would just let him write about whatever he wanted to write about. And what he wanted to write about was those times when he felt loved, those times when he felt safe in school and in Appalachia. And in Appalachia, food is love. So that's why food is just this recurring motif, because those were the times when I saw people taking care of me, people loving me. And I think knowing that right now, LGBTQ youth feel very alienated, feel very unloved, feel like they don't have a place in Appalachia, feel like they don't have a place in the classroom as a general rule. Uh, and I wanted to, for lack of a better word, rebuke uh, the educational system. I wanted to rebuke Appalachia, both of which I love, but both of which are failing children miserably right now um, because they refuse to wrestle with something that makes them uncomfortable. Would you like to read something from your book? Sure. Yeah. Um, neck bones. <laughs> it's fun to watch kids respond to this when I go into high schools and grade because there's usually just a few kids who know what a neck bone is. Uh, they get so excited to talk about it or don't want to talk about it at all. Uh, I've not had a single in-between. <laughs> neck bones. The more I know, the more I know that I know very little. But I know a few things for sure. And I'd bet everything I know that no princess ever ate a neck bone. But I had a lot of them on my mom and papa's house. My mom and papa's old wooden house was elderly before I was born. The porch slouching over in its crooked back in front of the door. 
the arthritic bones of the ceramic heaters cracking and the cold mornings. The uneven windows, denser and heavier at the bottom because of a lot of storm, snow, wind, and crying babies. I suppose the same thing happened to my aunts. When I spent the night there, I slept on the couch. And when I unfold myself from sleep at the beckon of the preaching wall of warmth that grew from the heater that my papaw would fill with kerosene during mystical early morning hours that I'd only heard about from adults. My mamma wore a red bandana on her head and played Ralph Stanley when she swept the carpet. With each powerful shove of the broom, dust would swirl on the kerosene warm front, dancing in the morning sun that squeezed in to the old windows, and Mamma would pick me up, still wrapped in my couch blankets, and deliver me to the kitchen table because she said the floor was too cold for my feet. Morning or evening, biscuit or beans, everything she made was covered in gravy or sauce because both surround everything until it becomes part of something bigger. Love is enveloping, and everyone knows that in the mountains, homemade gravy is loved. Neck bones exist deep in that old knowledge. She always served them in an ancient sage-colored glass bowl that faded up towards the lip like it was just too worn out for color. Paleontological proof of decades of grease, heat, steam, and soap. They splashed about in the bowl, floating on a thin horizon of grease, pearled, flattened globes of translucent liquid light that soaked into the soft white muscles of the half-drowned potatoes bobbing between the fleshy bones. I don't know why she even gave us forks. Eating neck bones meant abandon, a complete exorcism of rules and regulation. You'd have to hold tight to the slippery bones, then grasp the meat with your teeth, pulling slowly till you caught hold of the gristle, and then rip away. Grease, juice, gristle, and tater falling onto everything. Sometimes you'd have to spit out tiny bones if you pull too hard. And sometimes you get a big, satisfying bite that would make you feel like you had vanquished a long-known foe. Eating neck bones and taters is the culinary equivalent of saying ain't and meeting it, as strong as a cuss word. They used to do altar call, and long-skirted women with wooden guitars would sing that I was good enough to talk to God just as I was. Covered in grease and bones and potatoes, prepared by someone who carried me to the table, necessarily meant that I was loved exactly as I was, and would need nothing more than hunger to take this communion. That's just awesome. Thank you. When did you write that one? I mean, that, that calls back, I'm sure you've drawn from your drawn from family imagery right there and, and your upbringing. The way I write, um, your Toni Morrison calls it the flood, but she says, you know, your, your memories, your emotions, they live on your skin. And there will be moments in our lives when, when it floods back to you and there's not much you can do to prevent it. I'm a big gay Appalachian, so i got a whole lifetime of uh, feeling strong emotions. I'm not afraid of them. Uh, I'm comfortable letting them happen. So what I do when I write is whatever that feeling is, I just kind of let it be and I uh, wait for it to start articulating itself. Uh, and then I follow that. And I think a lot of times people are afraid to write about uh, what they might call sentimentality. It's a complicated idea because, you know, you don't want the truth of what you're talking about to be hidden behind um, something that's so emotional that people are going to feel some kind of way about it no matter what happens. And I think if you, if you center what you're talking about in your skin, if you center it in the emotions of what you're remembering, then it's going to come out in strange ways. And so, you know, remembering what it felt like to be loved, for example, meant I had to write about neck bones. You know, that, that was how it expressed itself. I mean, I was writing about cornmeal and water pancakes because that was how love expressed itself. It meant tiny moments of my mom pushing back against whatever ideology, whether we're talking about Mickey Mouse toys or whether we're talking about creatures telling us we're all going to burn in hell. Her, her small acts of defiance, those were things that stood out in my mind as uh, moments of being loved. What's your life been like since you left Montgomery County High School? Really, really good. It was one of the hardest decisions I've ever made. The truth is my presence, because of the way that people responded to me, which is not me, Willie Carver, it's me, a person who dares be gay uh, and not be ashamed of that, meant that they were attacking not just me, but my students. They were actually, there were people doxing my former students and those students were getting death threats uh, because they were LGBTQ. So I had to leave because my presence made them unsafe. 
And what I've learned is I now am a teacher in a classroom with no walls. I've been freed to talk about what I saw in the classroom and how we are harming these students or failing to save them uh, in so many capacities. And that means writing a book. That means working at the Kentucky Law Project to provide free legal help to students who need uh, support from uh, some outside source. That means testifying before Congress about the needs of Black, Brown, and LGBTQ students and the ways that we're failing them. That means getting to meet the president and talking to him about a specific student who needed his help and watching him actually respond to help that student. It's funny. I used to say back when I was tired of whatever whatever was being implemented in that classroom that would require a bunch of outside documentation or work or unnecessary thing for the teacher to do. I used to say, if ever I won the lottery, I would just go to a library and teach all day. But it would be just teaching. There wouldn't be interruptions and there wouldn't be ball games or there wouldn't be having to fill out this and that form or whatever. Uh, that was always my dream. I just want to teach. And now that I'm out of the classroom, I find like that's what I'm finally getting to do and I'm getting to actually teach. So I'm grateful. Um, and I've met a lot of beautiful Appalachians and I'm seeing just how good people are. And I think that's important when you've been seeing the ugly for a long time. Do you ever miss being a high school teacher, being like in, the, in a desk in front of kids? Absolutely. I know that I had a very lucky childhood. Even if there were moments of insecurity and poverty, I was loved by the people around me and supported by the people around me. And compared to other gay people or trans people my age, I'm in the top 1% because the vast majority of people I know were thrown away by their families. And so I feel this compulsion because of that to give back and to help. And there is no easier way as a human being that you can know that you are contributing positively to the world than to tell a young person that their life has worth and that their life has value and that they deserve to realize their dreams, that they deserve to have whatever it is that they want in life uh, and that they're capable. I miss that aspect a great deal. And nothing's going to replace that. There is no way that you can impact a, a person's life in the way that teachers can. But I'm finding other ways to teach uh, and, to, and to help. And I'm appreciative of that too. Oli Carver, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Bill. Gay Poems for Red States is available from University Press of Kentucky. Elliot Stewart has been making zines since he was 13. His ongoing zine, Porch Beers, is an incisive look at Appalachian culture through the eyes of a queer trans man. Porch Beers dives into pop culture fandom, West Virginia food, and Stewart's complicated relationship with his hometown of Huntington, West Virginia. I spoke with Elliot Stewart about a zine and about what a porch beer is, anyway. So I first found Porch Beers kind of randomly online using a different search engine than I tried before. And I ordered a couple copies on Etsy and was just blown away. Um, I've, I've read zines for a long time and I've read Appalachian zines and these just grabbed my attention as a reader. They hooked my interest. The writing is fun and short and funny, but also serious and thoughtful and the stuff you write about is all stuff that I'm interested in. Or if I'm not immediately interested, the way you write about it like, is like a fish hook that grabs my interest. And so tell us a little bit about yourself. Who is this person that makes porch beers? I guess kind of born and bred West Virginian. Um, moved a lot, around a lot as a kid. Um, we lived with my grandparents who were ministers and uh, moved a about every three to four years uh, to different parts of the state. So um, I feel like that wanderlust has always kind of been in me. And uh, one of my ways getting it out and recording memories is uh, just writing. You know, that's always uh, my grandma has little booklets I've made when I was like five or six that were kind of maybe my first zines. And it's a good way to be kind of front and center about like a lot of like intersecting identities that I have um, that I feel a lot of people come up to me and say that I'm like the first person from like X group that they've ever met. And I don't know. That's kind of cool. It has a lot of responsibility to it, but it's kind of cool. And everybody that comes in my house um, 
when they see these zines, they always wonder about the name. Tell us about the name Porch Beers. Sure, that was uh, a tradition in Huntington, and maybe I'm sure elsewhere too, like where you have a porch. Um, but Huntington is a small net community to where everybody knows everybody pretty much, and. You know, you can go by somebody's house, they're on their porch, hey, do you want a porch beer? Yeah, so you sit down, you have a talk, uh, could be about nothing, could be about, like, very important heart-to-heart stuff, uh, but that's just kind of like a hallmark of Huntington Summers, and I wanted uh, what I did to reflect that. Yeah, and the, the first issue is about fandom, and you have a few different essays about different arenas of fandom, per se. Um, and then the second issue on West Virginia, I found myself taking um, shots of some of the writing about food and sending it to Inside Appalachia's resident foodie, Zach Harold. And he was immediately like, where can I get this? Issue three was about music. And then you came back to food in issues four and 4.5. What pulled you back to food after you had already written about the different kind of foods um unique to West Virginia. What what pulled you back for two more issues? When I go to make an issue of Porch Beers, sometimes I will set out and it will be, I want X theme and write around that theme. But more often than not, it's just kind of, I write a couple of articles as to what I feel and a theme loosely takes shape. Um, and that's kind of what was happening with this one. To the point where, uh, you know, I had a couple of other like runner up uh, themes that I was going with. And my partner was like, you you might as well write about food because that seems like where this one is drawing you to. And I was, yeah, he's right. You know, the, that was what was on my mind. I don't know if there was any particular reason for it, but uh, that's just uh, where the writing led me. So I read through these five issues they're on specific topics, whether it's pro wrestling or the Ben Folds Five or West Virginia food. But there's there's a larger story arc here too. I mean, you can I, I can read growth in these zines. Um, you moved from Huntington to Chattanooga and back. When you read back these zines, what is the story of Porch Spears to you so far? I do go back and read them at times and sometimes I do kinda it is a little painful to read some of the early stuff just because I have changed so much as a person, but I'm glad I have a record of it, that it, these things happened. And honestly, you know, it's, I think, valuable to get stories of growth out there because not a lot of people record kind of the minutia of life in Appalachia or in like the various kind of sub communities I'm in. Porch Beers tracks this geographic shift, but it also documents sort of a different kind of transition. Can you share a little bit more about that? I am an out transgender man. Um, I have been out since, in in one form or another, um, as trans since about like 2018. And just slowly began uh, socially transitioning and then medically transitioning. Um, also uh, considered myself queer. Um, as uh, my my orientation, it's it's been an interesting experience with that. Um, you know, a lot of learning curve. Sometimes people, when they find out, will have like. I like to assume that most people are in good faith when they ask questions, but sometimes they can be very awkward or a little hurtful. Uh, but I try to take it in stride. You know, like like specific medical questions or things like, you know, and if I don't feel comfortable, I'm at least to the point now where I'm like, Hey, that's kind of a weird thing to be asking me. Yo, (laughs) a lot of times I'm the first trans person that someone has knowingly met. Uh, And that is wild to me sometimes. Well, Elliot Stewart, your writing resonates deeply with me and I can't wait to see what you write next. Thank you so much for coming on inside Appalachia. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. That was Huntington writer Elliot Stewart, author of the zine Porch Beers from 2022. Stewart continues to publish new issues of Porch Beers. We'll link to his Instagram, at porchbeerzine, on our website, wvpublic.org. 
You might have read about PFAS, or forever chemicals. They've been used for decades in everything from nonstick cookware to firefighting foams. Research by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention shows that every adult in America has a measurable amount of PFAS in their blood. And now, a new report shows that nearly half of U.S. water systems also contain PFAS. IdeaStream's Jeff St. Clair asked leading experts, how worried should we be? Toxicologist Linda Birnbaum, a former director at the National Institutes of Health, is one of the top experts on PFAS. What worries her most is how ubiquitous they are. Every single one of us has these chemicals in our body. Some people have more than others, and we don't always know exactly why, but we all have it. And I think that's very concerning. Not only are they in every one of us, she says they're everywhere within us. I don't know of a tissue or an organ system that hasn't been shown to be impacted by PFAS. Much of what we know about the health effects of PFAS come from a massive study done a decade ago along the Ohio-West Virginia border as part of a class action settlement with DuPont. It provides some of the strongest evidence of the risks posed by these chemicals. Nearly 70,000 people who drank contaminated water near a chemical plant in Parkersburg, West Virginia, were screened for increased rates of illness. The study found a probable link between PFAS and six conditions, thyroid disease, high cholesterol, ulcerative colitis, preeclampsia, kidney cancer, and testicular cancer. Philippe Grandjean, a professor of environmental medicine at the University of Southern Denmark, showed further risks. He says children exposed to PFAS have reduced immune function. The PFASs by themselves are causing this weakening of the immune system. His take on my question focuses on our most vulnerable population. How worried should we be? We should be worried if we care about our kids. Carla Ng, who studies PFAS at the University of Pittsburgh, echoes his concern for young people. It's stuff that's been in us since before we were born and that we know are linked to some pretty important health effects. And we do see at the population level worrying changes in human health. We see declines in fertility. We see greater incidence of chronic disease at younger ages. And here's where the chemistry comes in. PFAS don't exist in nature, but they mimic chemicals the body needs, like nutritious fatty acids and the lipids that make up our cell walls. Ng says that's where the trouble starts. Part of the problem with PFAS is that they look like a fatty acid, and so they are able to have these interactions with fatty acid receptors, but they can't be processed, right? So they go in there, and then your body goes, oh, hey, we got more fatty acids. Let's go and process them, and then it can't. The National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, in their report issued in 2022, found an association between PFAS and decreased immune function, abnormally high cholesterol, low birth weight, and increased risk of kidney cancer. I asked Dr. Alex Kemper at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, who contributed to the report, how worried should we be? I I don't know what the right answer is, and I don't think anyone really knows what the right answer is. He says it's ultimately up to each of us to answer that question and then pressure the medical community to catch up. I'm Jeff St. Clair. That story is from Ideastream Media a partner of the Allegheny Front. One question we've asked here before, what is Appalachia's biggest city? One of our listeners has argued it's Atlanta. The counties around it do blend into the Blue Ridge, and there have been several waves of migration from Appalachia into Atlanta. After the Civil War, droves of Appalachian workers migrated to a mill town in the middle of Atlanta, eventually known as Cabbage Town. Georgia folk singer and Appalachian activist Joyce Brookshire memorialized its history in this 1975 song. We're a mountain clan called Cabbage Town in the city of Atlanta, GA. And if it be the will of God, it's where we'll always stay. These Appalachians came to work at the Fulton Bag and Cotton Mill, which opened in 1881. A century and a half later, Cabbage Town is still home to urban Appalachian culture and traditions. Jess Mador has this story. 
the smokestacks of the Fulton Bag and Cotton Mill still tower over Cabbage Town. The 19th century district is famous for its narrow streets of Victorian homes, small cottages, and shotgun houses. It was added to the National Register of Historic Places in 1976. 83-year-old Ronald Edwards has lived in Cabbage Town his entire life. His small white house with a wide front porch sits a few blocks from the mill. I was born in 1938 on Powell Street, and I worked in the cotton mill. Edward's father and brother also worked at the mill. So did all of their neighbors. At its height, the complex employed nearly 3,000 people, turning raw cotton into bags for flour, grains, and other goods. Edwards worked in the fabric inspection department. What I do is run, uh, run the cloth through a winder and got all the bad defects out of it, make sure all the defects was out of it, you know. The work was physically exhausting. The hours were long and the pay was low. But Edward says neighbors helped each other get by. They shared conversation, food, and music. Rocking in his creaky chair, he remembers Cabbage Town as a great place to grow up. We would play hide-and-go-seek, horseshoes, basketball. On the, we'd be playing touch football, you know, in, in summertime, and maybe a neighbor come by and say, who's winning the game? Mom would be cooking breakfast or something, and a neighbor would come by and, and visit for two hours or more and just sit and visit and talk. And people don't do that anymore. The neighborhood's small-town feel thrived in part because of Cabbage Town's relative isolation. It's sandwiched along railroad tracks and the massive mill that covered several city blocks. Today, Edwards uses a cane. He has trouble getting around. He loves to sit by his living room window or out on the porch and chat with whoever walks by. Everybody in the neighborhood knows him. It's really cool. Edward's son, Ronnie, sits near his dad in the living room. Family photos and mementos decorate every wall. The magic thing, I think, about Cabbage Town is that you're instantaneously family. Like, I have never felt it anywhere else. That spirit of community faded for a while after the mill began shutting down in the late 70s. With the jobs leaving, some mill families moved away too. The area quickly declined. Drugs, prostitution, and violence took hold. To try and keep the peace, Ronnie says some longtime residents started an informal neighborhood watch group. Sometimes it was people out walking around. One of the members is named Myra, and she liked to power walk. So we would all power walk. Just being out in the community and, and showing, hey, we're not going to hide from this. Activists opened a community center for laid-off workers. There were after-school programs. And when gentrification began in the 80s, activists battled with real estate speculators, developers, and slumlords. They lobbied to protect what made Cabbage Town's arts, culture, and industrial heritage so unique. It's a mission that continues to this day. My name is Jacob Elsis, and I am the great-great-grandson of the founder of Fulton Bag and Cotton Mills, whose name was also Jacob Elsus. His great-great-grandfather was a German-speaking Jewish immigrant and Union Army veteran who came to America at the age of 18. He started as a street peddler and ended up in the textile business. Soon, the Elsus Fulton Bag and Cotton Mill grew into one of the biggest in the South. Its industrial output helped rebuild Atlanta after the Civil War. While Cabbage Town was more ethnically diverse than some outsiders assumed, Elsa says its dominant white Appalachian culture put the name Cabbage Town on the map. It was a derogatory name given to it by people on the outside. Surely they're a bunch of people who eat nothing but cabbage, they're poor mill workers. Even though there were certainly a lot of inhabitants who never wanted to call it Cabbage Town, eventually it became a badge of honor. Elsus grew up in Atlanta and moved out of state for 20 years. He says coming back to Cabbage Town about a decade ago and seeing the impacts of gentrification ignited his passion for sharing its stories. I made it my second half of my life's objective to come back in the neighborhood and 
try to work towards putting together an art and history center that would tell the story of the mill town, of the people who used to be part of this mill town who had been displaced. By then, the long, vacant, deteriorating Fulton Bag and Cotton Mill complex had been preserved. Its buildings were redeveloped into apartment lofts and condos. Elsus moved in, settling on the spot where his namesake opened the mill almost 150 years before. I was always aware that my family had built this factory and subsequently a little mill town next to it. He'd inherited a treasure trove of mill-related artifacts and photos. And after he met his wife, Nina, whose background is in art history and research, they worked together on the idea. In 2018, they opened their nonprofit storefront museum. They called it Patchworks Art and History Center, named after an iconic neighborhood social and educational organization launched in 1971. That was called the Patch, and that's kind of what compelled us to call our own history center the Patchworks. When the pandemic started, Patchworks closed to the public. But the couple's historic preservation and Cabbage Town advocacy work continues. Elsa says ever-skyrocketing housing prices and years of gentrification have left their scars on the neighborhood. They're working to foster more understanding between old-timers and newcomers. We want to try to be a bridge between new Cabbage Town to old Cabbage Town because a lot of the people who left feeling unwelcomed here, we want them to come back and participate. I know the cultures are very different now, you know, especially when it comes to, you know, economics. But we're all into this neighborhood together, and we should appreciate that and appreciate each other because of it. Every year in early November, longtime residents, newcomers, and descendants of the original Mill families gather in the neighborhood to celebrate Cabbage Town's Appalachian heritage with the Chomp and Stomp Arts, Food, and Traditional and Bluegrass Music Festival. The festival's been running for almost 20 years now as a benefit for Cabbage Town's public spaces and parks. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Jess Mador. The Chomp and Stomp Festival takes place in November. For more about it, visit our website. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Dinosaur Burps, John Ingram, Tyler Childers, Mary Hot, Joyce Brookshire, and John Blissard. Bill Lynch is our producer. Xander Alloy is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, offering 31 bachelor-level degrees and six master-level degrees for students of any age. More information at concord.edu.